Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor of connecting with Dr. Brooke Scheller. She is a doctor of clinical nutrition, a nationally recognized health expert, and the founder of Functional Sobriety, a nutrition-based program for alcohol reduction. She is also the author of How to Eat to Change How You Drink. Today, we dove into stigmatization around alcohol use, as well as sober curious and sobriety, common misconceptions and research surrounding alcohol use definition of moderation, and also the influence of industry ties, the issues related to excessive consumption, the role of poor absorption, impact on the gut microbiome and leaky gut related to alcohol intake, nutritional strategies to help address the use of alcohol, including higher protein meals and meal timing, the impact on fertility, blood sugar, and dry January and sober challenges, I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it. Well, welcome, Dr. Brooke. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. And it was so serendipitous that your work was introduced to me right at the time that I was looking to bring on an expert to talk about alcohol on the podcast. And now you have a new book, which I enjoyed reading thoroughly. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And it's funny that you mentioned that because when I first started writing the book about two years ago, and during that time, there was a lot of discussion in the sober, sober curious community. But I remember thinking, oh, this conversation is going to be over by the time this book comes out in two years. And it's more ripe than ever the space for this conversation. And so I'm just so excited to be a little teensy part of this conversation around exploring a life with less or no alcohol and bringing in my story personally, but also my experience as a doctor of nutrition. So I'm thrilled to have this conversation today. And I love that we have a similar backstory too, which is lots of fun. Yeah. So for listeners, Brooke and I both grew up in the same area of New Jersey in a town that most people have never heard of. And so when I was reading your book, I chuckled to myself. I actually reached out to you on Instagram and said, you're not going to believe this. We're from the same part of New Jersey. No one ever knows where it is. I usually have to just mention the county or counties that I grew up in. And so I felt a little kindred spirit to you with a lot of similarities in terms of you know, thought process of your evolution and your thought process around alcohol. So let's really start the conversation around the stigma around alcohol use, sober living, whether it's someone who has never had an unhealthy relationship with alcohol, but has just decided to stop drinking all the way to the individuals that maybe had an unhealthy relationship and are now no longer drinking Why is there so much stigma around alcohol? I suspect largely because it is such a socially permissible drug that people can use that's encouraged. And, you know, there's a lot of Mm -hmm. marketing and publicity around making alcohol as enticing as possible. Yeah. The conversation on this one's complex because I think there's a lot of pieces that play into the current stigma that we have around alcohol. And that stigma is definitely changing. We're in this era of, people being more sober curious or really just being more thoughtful about their decisions around alcohol use. And that stigma is lifting, which is making it easier for people to move forward and and come out and say, I'm not drinking because of XYZ reasons. But I believe that some of the stigma today exists around for a long time. You know, it was such a negative thing to have an alcohol problem or to be an addict of any kind or to join a group like Alcoholics Anonymous, which is anonymous for several reasons. But part of that also adds to that stigma and that shame of people not being more forthcoming maybe about their experiences with alcohol. And what's really shifting in this era of sober and sober curious is that more people are coming forward to say, I might not identify as an alcoholic or as someone who maybe has an addiction to alcohol, but I recognize that it has negative effects on my life. And that's where we get to have the choice. Like this isn't necessarily about 
you having to identify as having a problem or not having a problem. It's about, is this substance having a negative effect on my life? And if so, I get to make that choice to decide if I want that to be part of my lifestyle or not. And that's where the wellness and the nutrition angle is really interesting because it is a toxin. It is a toxic substance that we are selectively choosing to put into our body. And by doing so, we're having effects on our health. So that is a big part of what I talk about in the book. As you know, Cynthia, you know, how it affects our gut, our hormones, our blood sugar, how it contributes to changes in our metabolism, changes to our brain's neurotransmitters. And so this isn't just about you feeling like maybe you're drinking too often, but if you're feeling like your alcohol use is having effects on your mental health, it's contributing to anxiety or low mood. It's maybe contributing to difficulties with weight management or your gut health or your hormone balance that you can decide to change that relationship with alcohol. And it doesn't necessarily need to mean that you have a problem with it. Yeah, and I think it's such an important distinction. And the message today is not to shame anyone who does drink. That is certainly not the message. I think growing awareness around what drives people's decisions to drink can be illuminating. I know uncomfortable feelings. I have a family member, my listeners know that I have a family member who's an alcoholic that is heavily influenced my drinking behaviors throughout my lifetime. And it's interesting, I was in your book, you were talking about the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Children of alcoholics may be four times as likely to engage in inappropriate drinking behavior. And more than 10% of children in the US ages less than 17 live with an adult with an alcohol use disorder. So, you know, certainly genes are not our destiny. Even if you grew up in an environment where a parent might have had an addiction, that does not mean that you will definitely go on. You may be more susceptible, but that doesn't mean or equate to you will be dealing with a chronic or acute related concern specific to alcohol. And I I think for a lot of individuals, myself included as a clinician, we were always told that alcohol has has, has all these health benefits, you know, resveratrol, you know, you have two glasses of red wine, it's going to be super beneficial. And yet we're starting to see the research that's coming out that's contrary to that. Can we talk a little bit about that? What is the research telling us about alcohol use right now? What is it doing to our health, both on an acute and a chronic level? Yeah, well, great question. And I'll I'll start by just pointing out too that the statistics around alcohol use behaviors and our kind of familial history is still up for debate in a lot of ways. I talk in the book about some of the genetics that are associated with increased susceptibility for alcohol use disorder. But I think there's a lot of misconception on what that really means that when we hear that there's maybe genetic susceptibility or that we have an increased risk because a family member might, it's not that there is this one gene that says you yes or no. The research actually shows there's all different kinds of genes that can be associated with it. Things like how our liver metabolizes alcohol, like how our dopamine is metabolized in our brain, but also things that are seemingly unrelated, like our hunger and satiety hormones, leptin and ghrelin, are also have affiliations or associations with development of alcohol use disorder. So that's where the nutrition piece gets really interesting for me. But I think it's an important distinction to point out that as it relates to genetics, it's not like it's in your genes. So yes or no, there's a lot of complexity to that. And for many people, it's that question of nature versus nurture of being in that environment and growing up with a family member that has not even necessarily a diagnosed alcohol use disorder, but maybe heavy alcohol use or frequent alcohol use that has an impact either positive or negative on the child, either that the child looks at that maybe and says, I don't want to continue that pattern, or it's so normalized in the home that it's not necessarily something that is ever looked at as a negative or an unhealthy behavior, and therefore that behavior is continued. But to shift and answer your question about the health effects of alcohol, they're far and wide. And 
you know, I think we hear certain things like alcohol increases risk for cancer. And that's one of the things that is a little bit more widely known, but the statistics are even quite low of how many people are aware of that and how impactful it is. In fact, I was just on a recent session through the World Health Organization out of Europe talking about and making the comparison of alcohol and tobacco and how we know that alcohol causes cancer, but we don't have warning labels on alcohol bottles like we do on tobacco. And that is something that is potentially in the future for something like alcohol, as we continue to understand more about its negative effects. And in the early 2000s, there was much more of that research that came out around the Mediterranean diet that said, exactly like you mentioned, one glass or two glasses of red wine may have benefits. But what we're actually seeing now in the research, 2022 was a, a pretty pivotal year in terms of research studies around alcohol and really finding that there is no cardiovascular benefit at any level, that those previous studies are now being refuted, that we are seeing major impacts on the brain, both in its structure and function. So we're seeing decreases in gray matter volume, white matter volume within the brain. And a lot of the research that I find really interesting isn't what gets us popularized just yet, but things that I cover in the book where we're seeing the impacts that alcohol has on the gut microbiome and the impacts that it has on intestinal permeability or the lining of the gut and how that can contribute to things like autoimmune disease. Also things like cortisol and hormones and blood sugar and all of these other kind of smaller, like not as sexy topics that I really think we're going to continue to see more of. And this book for me has just been an amazing way to pull together all of this misunderstood research around how alcohol is actually affecting our bodies negatively and those risks really outweighing the benefits that we seemingly have have thought were there previously. Yeah. And all those topics on this podcast, we love. So the blood sugar yeah. dysregulation, the impact mm -hmm. on hormones, satiety, leaky gut, autoimmune conditions. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely up our alley. So I'm so grateful that you wrote this book and it allows us to have this opportunity to tie all these things together. Now you mentioned that there is this net impact, this emerging research. I think the gut microbiome is certainly something that has gotten a lot more attention the last several years. Let's talk about what's going on physiologically in the gut when we are consuming alcohol. And let's be really clear, like having one glass of wine once a month is very different than I do know many people that are having two or three glasses of wine every night. And maybe before we even have that conversation is let's talk about this concept of moderation, because I think that's so important. You know, we I used to say for a long time, as it pertains to a lot of lifestyle stuff, moderate, don't eliminate but there are definitely people who can't moderate and therefore they do need to genuinely eliminate some of these things. So how does the USDA define, you know, there's the 2020 to 2025 dietary guidelines. How did they define what is moderation? Because I think it's very interesting that there are these little nuances depending on which organization is talking about alcohol consumption. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, there's industry ties in there, too. And so even if we think of things like the recommendations for dairy and milk and how questionable that is based upon the Dairy Council and their kind of stake in the conversation. And so, you know, as it relates to the most recent dietary guidelines that I write about in the book, they're written every five years. So our most recent is 2020 through 2025, which is it is a body of research that's pulled together every five years through the USDA to give general recommendations to Americans on what to eat to follow a healthy lifestyle. And so that that recommendation is this the typical what we know of the one glass or less for women per day, two or less per day for men. And that is what we call quote unquote moderation, or that is what we kind of consider or recommend to be what we should be following on a regular basis. Very little kind of insight into the fact that it's actually better for you if you don't drink at all, right? We rarely talk about that being a part of the conversation. But as we're talking about here, the research changes and can change qu quite quickly. So actually, 
in 2022, mid-year, Canada released new guidance that said that anything over two drinks per week will begin to increase risk for different types of health effects. Anything over six or seven glasses per week is going to hop you into another and increased risk category where now we're seeing closer associations with things like cancer, for example. And so you can see that two drinks per week is very different than the two drinks per day that is currently in the recommendations. And actually, there was an article that came out not long ago, you know, starting to kind of create this controversy over is is America going to follow these Canadian guidelines? Because it's a pretty stark contrast compared to, you know, what we're kind of currently saying today. But in general, like moderation, like you're saying, Cynthia, is this term that we kind of just like blanket statement. Like if you were to ask anyone on the street what moderation means when it comes to alcohol, they'll probably have a different answer. And that's based on their own life experiences and their own perceptions and beliefs around alcohol. Someone who doesn't drink often might say moderation is having one drink you know, a couple times a month or a couple times a year where you might ask someone here in New York City what their idea of moderation is. And it might be, you know, a couple drinks a day. And so it's not necessarily something that we have well-informed people about what that means. And I also think that that gives many of us the opportunity to kind of take that and run with it and make it mean for us what we feel like it means for us. But what I can tell you as someone who identifies as having a very dysfunctional relationship with alcohol in the past is that my belief around moderation was was very skewed by my dysfunctional behaviors with alcohol. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that my perception of moderation was correct either. And so it's a really tricky topic. And the one thing that I share with people often and often share on podcasts is that if you have a health concern, if you have something that you are working toward improving, or if you have a condition that you have symptoms for that you are looking to minimize, or you're really looking to amplify and improve your health, the best thing that you can do is limit your consumption to close to nothing or nothing, right? That if you have a health goal, let's say you have an autoimmune condition, a thyroid condition, you're struggling with weight management, et cetera, alcohol is absolutely having an effect on that. It's just a matter of how much of an impact that that might be having. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armra Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armra's colostrum strengthens immunity ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutraSense. 
It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise. So you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Yeah, I think, you know, especially as we're kind of entering 2024, and this would be four years into the pandemic and the social isolationism and the ongoing joke that a lot of colleagues would say is you either became a hunk, a drunk or a chunk, meaning people either took that time where we were all in suspended animation and either leaned into good habits or leaned into habits that then became problematic. And so I love that you're inviting us to have this conversation in a way that makes it very non-judgmental and makes it more supportive. Like let's closely examine our behaviors and figure out if they're working well for us. We were pivoting a little bit to talk about gut health. And I think that this is certainly an area for my population, certainly my listeners, most of whom are 35 and up, um, they are definitely impacted by the changes going on in their bodies with perimenopause and then menopause. Gut health becomes paramount, especially as we have all these hormonal fluctuations. But let's talk about what alcohol actually does to the gut microbiome, what it does to small intestinal lining integrity, leading to leaky gut and all sorts of unpleasantries that if we aren't navigating this in a proactive way can become problematic. Yeah. And this is a topic I love talking about because it really does not get enough attention as it relates to the discussion around alcohol and the impacts of alcohol. And one of the really well-known things that we know about alcohol is that it affects nutrient absorption and it will cause deficiencies in many of our nutrients, which is a big part of the book and a big part of my work around nutrition is that the very nutrients that we need to have energy and healthy mood and not have anxiety, for example, are the ones that alcohol depletes. So we kind of get caught in this vicious cycle. So we know pretty well that alcohol affects uh, nutrient absorption, but also digestion because it's very irritating to the stomach lining. It's very irritating to the small intestine and the bowels. That burning sensation that we feel if we were to take a shot of liquor, for example, that continues on through our system and is very irritating to the lining of the digestive system. So there's kind of three ways that I look at the effects that alcohol has on the gut. The first is digestion and absorption and kind of what's happening maybe in the upper half of the stomach and small intestine and how we're kind of breaking down the food that we're consuming. The second is the impacts on the gut microbiome. So what we are seeing in the research is that alcohol does decrease bacterial diversity 
it does negatively impact probiotics. So our good bacteria, it's lowering our bifido, our lactobacillus, and it's causing or allowing our body to increase levels of more harmful microbes that are maybe there naturally, like E. coli, for example, or streptococcus, which is, is a normal part of our digestive or uh, gut microbiome. But when we don't have as much protective action from our probiotics, they can start to overgrow. So we're seeing that there's this skewing toward more overgrowth or dysbiosis, overgrowth of that harmful bacteria and a lowering of our probiotic bacteria. That is going to create many effects, as we know, throughout the body. I'm sure your audience, you've spoken about this on the podcast before, all of the health effects that can come with dysbiosis or an imbalanced gut microbiome. It's also going to contribute to uh, candida or yeast overgrowth because yeasts feed off of sugar carbohydrates. And many of these microbes, these harmful microbes, can actually feed off of alcohol too. So there's this really interesting research that shows that these imbalances in the gut microbiome can also contribute to cravings that we have for alcohol. That is a piece of kind of the cravings, which we can talk a little bit more about, but there's a big association as well with blood sugar. The third piece that is also important is what we were discussing about leaky gut and intestinal permeability. And so there's actually really interesting research around alcohol being one of the most disruptive things to the intestinal tract. So we know that there are other things that will break down the digestive lining, like certain types of medications, uh, high sugar, high carbohydrate diet, toxins from our food, from our environment can all be disruptive to the gut lining. Some of those things are a little bit more difficult to avoid, right? So if we have you know, toxins in the air that we're breathing. Yes, we can move, we can filter our air, et cetera. But alcohol is something that by choice is, is going to have a negative impact on our gut lining. And so as we kind of briefly touched on earlier in the discussion, intestinal permeability or that leaky gut can be really closely associated with things like food sensitivities, um, especially adult onset food allergies, autoimmune disease. So especially if you have an autoimmune disease and you're drinking alcohol regularly, that is definitely going to be making things maybe a little bit more difficult to manage that autoimmune disease and keep you from kind of getting a little bit more control over that via the gut. But also things like systemic inflammation. You know, we're having kind of a, a crisis, an epidemic of inflammation in our society. And, and alcohol is a huge contributor to this. And unfortunately, it's been something that I really believe we've done a disservice to our society and not really providing enough information on how harmful that it really truly is. And now we're having to kind of backpedal a little bit. And part of my goal with this book is educating people on knowing like, this is something that is truly having a negative effect on you. Those slight benefits that maybe you've been told were there are actually not being outweighed by the risks of, of what's really truly going on on an internal systemic level. Yeah. And it's interesting because you bring up the nutrient malabsorption or the poor absorption of nutrients. And this may seem intangible to some, but for those of us that are licensed healthcare providers, my alcoholic patients always had, we used to call it a banana bag, but it was a bag full of IV fluids that was colored yellow because it had B vitamins in it. And one of the significant and severe side effects of long-term drinking, heavy drinking, is you can have kind of like the worst case scenario, Wernicke's encephalopathy, which is a fancy way of saying you get some brain-related effects due to the chronic drinking that are impacted by this low absorbability, specifically of B vitamins. And there are key nutrients like thiamine that our body needs. And if it's not getting it can become problematic. So I know that you talk about specifically some of these B vitamins and how important it is understanding that alcohol increases our needs for antioxidants, you know, that's number one, like vitamin C, which is something we should be getting, you know, ascorbic acid, we should be getting that from, you know, citrus fruits and other things. But also it can actually block the absorption, as you mentioned, in the gut, and that in and of itself can be problematic. So I know lots of people that enjoy taking supplements, but the supplements they, they're taking may not even you may not even get the benefits if you are using alcohol excessively or frequently or habitually that can actually impact 
what's going on in the gut, what's being absorbed, what your body can readily use. And I love that you brought up the gut microbiome. We've had so many physicians coming on and talking about this. The research continues to emerge and finding balance in the gut microbiome is really key. As you mentioned, certain medications, you know, things like whether it's proton pump inhibitors, H1 blockers, whether it is antibiotics, all of these can have a negative net impact on the gut microbiome. But then thinking about these seemingly benign things like alcohol can also kind of light a match. And then you add into that as women are navigating middle age, they're already a little bit more inflammatory. There's already an upregulation and oxidative stress. And so many women will say to me, I used to be able to drink in my twenties and thirties. I no longer can because it disrupts my sleep or it gives me hot flashes or it makes me crave food that I should not be eating. So let's kind of pivot and talk about some of the choices that we make with regard to food. You were alluding to this, some of the cravings piece, but some of the food things that we will lean into if we are drinking excessively. I I think about the family member that I've alluded to. He is a carboholic. He's very thin, but all he eats is like fruit and granola bars and cereal and bread. And that is like the mainstay of his diet other than alcohol. And it's very likely he's feeding exactly the gut imbalances that are ongoing. Those you know, the yeasty beasties, you know, what's going on with yeast and candida is very likely being fueled. That is their fuel source. That is what they are looking for. So those cravings can be for a variety of reasons, but more often than not are a sign that something is remiss in the gut microbiome. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is where food and nutrition is, is a really critical piece of this discussion and has not been until I started working on this book. And You know, I think that there's so much conversation in today's day and age around alcohol and the mental health effects and the ways that we can manage alcohol use via support groups, via therapy, via addressing traumas and all of these really, really, really dire and important things to address. But we're forgetting that there's this physiological side of things that when we put alcohol into our system, it is having an effect on our physiology, whether we want to believe it or not. And so again, some of these ways that it's affecting the gut and our actions and our choices of the foods that we eat are going to be affected by that. And it's really interesting because when I started doing this work, one of the core areas that came up for me was around blood sugar. And as you know, from reading the book, there's an entire section on really the hormonal system, the endocrine system, and also blood sugar. And so this is an important area because a lot of people, when they quit drinking and depending on how heavy their drinking was, they may experience cravings for alcohol. But when they take away the alcohol, they typically experience cravings for sugar. And a lot of that discussion previously has been around dopamine and how alcohol increases dopamine levels. So when we take it away, what also increases dopamine levels is sugar. And yes, that is true. There is a piece of this discussion around dopamine, but there's also a very close link with blood sugar. And there's research that shows that alcohol can contribute to irregularities in blood sugar levels, even when we are not drinking. So a lot of people who have a a heavier history of drinking or a more regular history of drinking, they can have tendency toward hypoglycemia. And because of that, they're going to have these chronic decreases in blood sugar, these points of low blood sugar that manifest as cravings for sugar, carbohydrates, but also alcohol. And so when we take away the alcohol, what exists there? Well, we have sugar and we have carbs and alcohol is different than sugar and carbs because we don't need alcohol to survive. Our body is not necessarily fueled by alcohol, but our body is fueled by glucose, right? So we can't take away sugar completely. We can't take away carbohydrates completely because they are still part of the fuel for our body, unless we're in ketosis, right? For example. And so Food can be such a critical part of this journey. And one of the simple recommendations that I give, and it's kind of my like number one recommendation for people who are looking to change the relationship with alcohol, looking to quit drinking, is increasing protein intake. And that's going to support in a couple of different ways. One is that it's going to help balance and stabilize that blood sugar. It's going to help us avoid 
getting into these pitfalls with cravings, again, not only for sugar, but also for alcohol. It's also going to help with those hunger and satiety hormones, right? So it's going to kind of keep us in this more regulated state. I always recommend having something to eat every three to four hours so that again, we're keeping blood sugar fairly stable and regular. And Another thing that I, and and I know that you talk a lot about intermittent fasting and the benefits of intermittent fasting, but I actually find for those who are early in this journey, especially if they have heavier alcohol use, that they may struggle to manage cravings for alcohol and sugar if they are in a fasted state. And so I'm actually more of a proponent during this time of having breakfast, having high protein breakfast, because that is going to stabilize you throughout the, the latter part of the day as well. And one thing that I'll also just point out in relation to that and kind of this meal timing or structuring these protein meals throughout the day is what time of the day is it that most people struggle? It's the 4 or 5 p.m. time slot. You're coming home from work. You've had a really stressful day and the craving is really strong and overwhelming and it's hard to say no to a drink at that time. And my first question is, well, when was the last time you had something to eat? Because most people had maybe lunch many, many hours ago, maybe it was a quick lunch, maybe it was a high carb lunch. And that can be influencing these cravings later on in the day. So there's a lot of ways that we can use food to kind of strategize in and getting through, especially these early times, if you're someone who does feel like you have maybe a little bit more of that physical craving for alcohol, or find it really hard to say no when that craving starts to hit. I think those are such important points. And certainly with my background, I always say intermittent fasting is one of many strategies, but it may not be the right strategy for you at this time. So if there are people listening who are interested in fasting and they do have a disordered or dysfunctional relationship with alcohol, it's probably not the time. You may need to have three solid protein-centric meals a day, get your blood sugar stabilized, keep that satiety up because to your point... Each one of us has a vulnerable time of the day where we are more prone to eating foods we probably shouldn't ideally eat or consuming things that we shouldn't ideally be doing. And I think setting up having stable blood sugar is one of the most impactful and important things that we can do. Talk to me about women and fertility and alcohol, because you bring up some interesting points in the book, speaking specifically to fertility, which I think is really relevant um, again, uh, in the context of understanding that alcohol is not this benign entity. Yeah, I think fertility is such an interesting topic. And it's really eye opening for women when they hear this kind of different perspective, because for the most part, we hear that you shouldn't drink while you're pregnant, right? And that's kind of the what we hear is once you're pregnant, then you stop drinking because it can be harmful for the fetus and the development of the baby. But we aren't discussing the impacts that alcohol is having during conception or during that period of fertility. There was an amazing study that was done in 2021, and this is the one that I reference in the book, around that looked at fecundability, which is essentially the egg implanting for a successful conception. And it looked at the impacts of alcohol on fecundability at different levels of different points of the women's cycle. So during ovulation, during um, the luteal phase, across the board, right? And what they found is that at all points in a woman's cycle, alcohol intake was associated with a lower fecundability score. So a decreased risk for conception that was strongest if women were drinking during the ovulation phase. So yes, during ovulation, if that is the, if you are strategically working to have a successful pregnancy and you are consuming alcohol during that ovulation period, it may be having an effect on a successful conception. But that is also to say that during this time, even in even during your period, if you're drinking alcohol, that can still have an impact on your success of conception during your ovulation phase a few weeks later. And so this is, again, to your point, it is not a benign substance. It is not just something that we need to consider when we put it in. And, you know, I think many people associate like, well, when I drink, I get a hangover and that's the effect that I have of alcohol. And we don't necessarily think of these longer term effects that really do have an impact on all of these 
health effects for ourselves, for our families, et cetera. And this isn't just for women. There's research that also shows how alcohol affects male fertility and sperm motility, sperm count, and sperm quality. And so this isn't just for women. This is for men and women to consider if fertility and conception is is a goal for you. Yeah, I think it's such an important point because there's now greater awareness around this. And I think for you know, I am friends with a lot of urologists, male hormone specialists, and they'll talk about the fact that we now have this epidemic of infertility in men, largely because of insulin resistance, secondarily to that exposure to estrogen mimicking chemicals in the environment. And mm-hmm. I would imagine, again, if we reflect back on the past nearly four years, probably a bit more alcohol consumption for most people overall, given the stress, the strain of the pandemic, social isolation, et cetera. And I find it's really interesting, you know, if men are consuming a great deal of, let's say, beer, as an example, beer's a good indicator, you can get something called aromatization. So the men's testosterone that their body is making endogenously inside the body can aromatize, can be made into estrogen. So not only is this another component to why we're dealing with infertility issues in men, but it can be exacerbated by something as seemingly benign as beer. I'm using beer as the example because that was the research I was looking at. And oftentimes there are physical signs that are a key to this, you know, feminization is sometimes the word that people will use in terms of men that are, are dealing with maybe they've got abdominal obesity, they've got a little bit of a belly, maybe they have gynecomastia, which means they have some, you know, enlargement of their breast tissue unfortunately, which is also a permanent thing unless you deal with it surgically, but understanding like we'll start seeing some changes in the male body habitus in relationship to over consumption of alcohol. And for some people, they think they're like, oh, it's cute. He's got a beer belly. No, it's actually a sign of this aromatization of testosterone to estrogen, very likely some degree of insulin resistance, lower testosterone. And we're seeing more and more of this, which I think clinically is a huge concern for a variety of different reasons. Yeah, it's, you know, I think we have for a long time as a society put this very positive spin on alcohol, that it is beneficial for your social life. It's beneficial for your relationships. It's, you know, part of our work life. I know even as someone in the wellness space, and you read this in my book, that I was still surrounded by people who were drinking heavily, that I'm sure you've gone to conferences that are health oriented, that are still pouring lots of alcohol. And it is very ingrained in our society in every which way, including the health sector. And we actually see some really high levels of alcohol use disorder in doctors, right? Because of their stress. And, you know, the it's kind of, you know, again, to compare alcohol and tobacco, we used to advertise that doctors smoked camels right? Because camels were the doctor's choice. People, you know, we were actually marketing that. And in a way we're doing that today, maybe not as directly through magazine advertisements previously, but by showcasing on, you know, on television or in movies, these professionals are imbibing and still having a successful life or a a happy life. And so, you know, something like beer and sports, right? It carries this American concept of the American dream. And, you know, this is what we do on Sundays and how we connect with our friends and family members, et cetera. And it's really, really sabotaging our health in so many ways. And, you know, the research that had come out earlier this year, and maybe it was was toward the end of last year, but around how one in five adult deaths are the result of alcohol-related effects. And actually one in four deaths of those between the ages of, I believe it was 18 to 35, one in four is actually alcohol-related. And that's only looking at things like accidents, things like liver disease, and things that are very specifically alcohol-related. But let's not forget that alcohol is a huge risk factor for cardiovascular disease, which is the number one cause of death, right? And so we can't necessarily splice out that data or we haven't necessarily spliced out that data to say how much alcohol is contributing to the overall epidemic of cardiovascular disease, but it is having a major, major impact. And 
I know that I don't want to be like scare tactic-y in the way that we're talking about this. And I don't want you to feel bad if you do drink or have had maybe a history of heavy alcohol use. This is simply just to inform you that you have the choice moving forward of how you want alcohol to be a part of your life. And for so long, this goes into the stigma, like to bring it full circle, it's been, you're not cool if you don't drink alcohol, that there's something wrong with you if you don't drink alcohol, that there's this negative association if you're someone who doesn't drink. And now it's cool not to drink. I mean, we're seeing celebrities not drinking. We're seeing a huge rise in non-alcoholic beverages. It's not as stigmatized as it once was. And so I really believe there's a major shift happening in our society around alcohol. And if you are making this decision now to change your relationship with it, you're on the forefront of, I think, a really exciting new venture in the the health and wellness world. And so it's a really exciting time. I'm really nerdy about it, but I also really believe that. And I know that alcohol elimination has completely changed and transformed my life. And I truly believe that it will do that for every single person who's listening. Yeah. And I think you bring up so many good points. I mean, the the stigmatization of whether you do or don't drink. I know within my health and wellness community, certainly events I've gone to over the last four years, more often than not, people don't drink. And it's been nice to be surrounded by other people who are not drinking because in a lot of social settings, when I tell individuals that I don't drink alcohol, and for full disclosure, I've never had a problem. But as I was navigating my 40s, it was the one thing that gave me hot flashes. And so that was the mm-hmm. sign of my sleep is too important. I don't want hot flashes. Therefore, I'm not going to drink. And I'm I'm just that discipline. That's how important my sleep is. The conversations I have socially, people, oh, it makes them uncomfortable. In many instances, they get very triggered. I'm like, listen, I am good with a glass of sparkling water and a lime. No one knows the difference. It's totally fine. But I find many people are just so uncomfortable, like, what do you mean you don't drink? And so Mm -hmm. I love that there are more and more individuals that are choosing not to drink. And if you do choose to drink, do so with some degree of responsibility and understanding of what is going on with your body. And I think that allows people to make you know good decisions for themselves. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi Optimizers. Masszymes is a full spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product with five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today, risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. 
We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of beam minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water and you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. I would love to kind of touch on, you know, we're heading into the end of 2023. I know for a lot of people, they subscribe to the philosophy of dry January or having, you know, sober challenges. What is your prevailing philosophy around this? Like, do you have recommendations, suggestions, or ways to navigate this? And for full disclosure, my husband and all of his childhood friends, every January, they do a a dry January to support one another. And so for the entire month of January, my husband doesn't drink any alcohol. He usually only drinks on Friday and Saturday night, but it becomes this, he'll say to me, it's like a reset because it's such a part of what he does on Friday night to unwind or have a glass of wine on Saturday. And then all of a sudden he's like, I need to find something else to fill that space. Mm -hmm. So when people are navigating the beginning of 2024, what are some of the suggestions and recommendations you may have for them? Yeah. So I think that these challenges are great. I think that it's a great way to explore alcohol elimination. It's a great way to kind of set a goal around it because for most people, we need a little bit of like an end point maybe to help us kind of understand or just make that decision to make the change. And many people who do eventually go more sober curious or eventually eliminate oftentimes start with these challenges because they give themselves a little bit of space and opportunity away from alcohol to start feeling the benefits of alcohol elimination. Unfortunately, alcohol can take at least a week to regulate, or our body will take at least a week to regulate cortisol levels after alcohol use. It will take a couple of weeks to start to re-regulate some of these areas like the gut microbiome and uh, brain neurotransmitters, et cetera. So even if we're drinking once a week or a couple times a month, we still don't really have full clarity in our brain and our body of how we feel without alcohol. So just something to keep in mind if you're considering something like a dry January. And the biggest thing to to do during this time is, is use it as an opportunity to learn and understand more about your relationship and your behaviors around alcohol. And so books like mine, like How to Eat to Change How You Drink, or many of the other kind of what we call quitlet books are great resources during this time while you're taking a break to start to understand a little bit more about what's going on in your body when we consume alcohol what is you know what is underlying maybe some of these behaviors but also there's a huge community of sober curious people on social media in different podcasts on sober curiosity so If you're exploring a month like dry January, surround yourself with some of these resources because it's not only going to help you make it through a month fully alcohol-free, but it's also going to help strengthen your understanding of your behaviors with alcohol during that time so that when you get to the end of the month, you can make a more informed decision around if it's something that you want to continue further or how you're kind of going to use that information moving forward. Because my concern around dry January is that 
on February 1st, you go right back out like guns blazing and right back to the bar. And we really want to use this as an opportunity to help influence your behaviors moving forward rather than kind of a short term reset, for lack of a better word, that is not necessarily going to have an impact on your health and longevity. Yeah. And it's interesting. Um, Years ago, when I was still seeing patients clinically in this cardiology practice that I work for, we used to use a cage questionnaire. So there were specific questions. We would ask patients to get a sense for how much alcohol they drank. And inevitably, if someone told me they had four drinks a night, I would double it. That was the prevailing philosophy that a lot of people felt uncomfortable. They felt like they were perhaps being judged although that was certainly never what I intended anyone to feel it was really to get a sense for how much alcohol, like, do I need to give you certain medications in the hospital to make sure you don't have a seizure because you drink quite a bit? You mentioned in the book, you know, looking at root causes, looking at stress, you know, use the HALT kind of acronym. Let's talk a little bit about that because there may be someone listening that is interested in being more sober conscious. They're interested in perhaps a dry January, but how do they help differentiate if they just drink a little too much or if they in fact actually have a problem with alcohol in and of itself? Yeah. And it's a great question because to so many people, alcohol dysfunction or deciding that you have a dysfunctional relationship with alcohol is self-determined, right? That I could say I have two drinks per day, and that feels unhealthy for me or is having a negative impact where someone else might be having five drinks, six drinks, eight drinks a day, and still not feel necessarily like that they are out of control. And so it's really in many ways, you know, unless you're working with a practitioner, a mental health practitioner, a psychiatrist who is going to diagnose that, Most of the time when we go to our practitioners, we're not fully transparent or honest about that. And I write about that in the book because it was an interesting thing for me to experience as a healthcare practitioner, but also someone who goes to healthcare practitioners, right? Of how to like balance that discussion and that conversation to my own, you know, benefit, of course, during those times. And, you know, it is, you know, I think innately, if you feel uncomfortable with your relationship with alcohol. There are so many people who I know in sobriety that admit that at one point they had Googled, do I have an alcohol problem or not? Right. And I've heard in some conversations that people who don't have a problem don't wonder if they have a problem or not. Right. That there is this kind of inner knowing that we know in our own selves, if we're choosing this as something that is out of our own desire. If you are someone who has said, I'm only going to have one drink, and then you wake up the next day hungover and had kind of lost control of those choices, it's not to say that you have a problem. I hate that word problem because it's just like, it's such a negative thing. And it's not really about that. You know, one of the things I talk about in the beginning of the book is that we're not going to use the word alcoholic. We're not going to talk about if you have a problem or not. This is going to be a way for you to just explore where there's opportunity for you to change. and, And if this is a lifestyle that you want to pursue, because I really believe, again, it goes back into the stigma. No one wants to have a problem with anything. It's such a negative connotation. And there's such an opportunity for us to use this as a means of self-improvement, that it's not about beating ourselves up for the choices that we made before. It is not about placing a negative association on this. This is simply you saying, I get to have a choice. Am I going to be present in my life or am I going to numb out my feelings or emotions? Am I going to have the strength to kind of overcome these things? Or am I going to continue down this path of maybe holding myself back in a lot of ways? And so I really think that we get to decide if we feel like we want to identify as alcoholic, problem drinker, whatever that might be. If you feel good doing that, do it. But that also doesn't mean that you can't just stand up today and say, I don't like how alcohol makes me feel. And I'm going to do something about that. I think it's such an important message. And I'm so very grateful that you helped me reframe some of the terminology. Not that I've purposely been pejorative, but helping me understand to speak in a way that allows people to feel comfortable kind of exploring what it is that they're going through. 
Now, obviously, individuals that are listening to the podcast can certainly purchase your book, but I'd love to round out the conversation with you sharing a little bit about your story because it was incredibly inspiring and you were very transparent. When was the point at which you acknowledged you were ready to make a change in your relationship with alcohol? Yeah. And it's always such a personal thing. Thank you for asking me to share my story. It's a personal thing for all of us when we get to that point of making that decision. And the part of the stigma and the history around alcohol use has been you have to hit rock bottom to decide that you're going to stop. And that's kind of the mentality of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? That you come in when you when you don't really have any other choice. And the beauty today is that there are so many resources around sober curious, around you know, exploring this idea of becoming sober, that you don't have to be at a rock bottom to decide that you want to change your relationship with alcohol. And for me, my kind of quote unquote rock bottom was not traditional in the sense of I didn't have a DUI. I lived in New York City. I didn't have a car. So that was that was lucky. <laughs> but you know, I didn't lose a job. I didn't have any kind of monumental things happen to me. But my rock bottom was the culmination of many, many years of self-imposed anxiety and depression and many years of using alcohol as a coping tool and really struggling with the effects that it was having on me, but also feeling very out of control. I didn't know any other way of living. I had no other coping skills and I had started drinking as a, a young teenager. So it kind of just pervaded my lifestyle in its entirety. And it really wasn't until the pandemic that I felt that I had lost more control than I had previous to the pandemic. And this is kind of a typical story that the pandemic increased drinking for a lot of people, a lot of isolation. You know, for me, I was working from home. So that really changed my ability to start drinking earlier in the day on some days. And I ended up being someone who probably prior to the pandemic was drinking four or five days a week. And during the pandemic, by the time I quit drinking, I was drinking six or seven days a week, more like seven and several of those days starting earlier in the day. And I didn't last very long doing that because I caught myself in this really, really unhealthy cycle that some people get stuck in for many years. And for me, I felt like I was kind of built up with pressure, like all the way to the seams. I always make this reference and I don't, if anyone's a Titanic fan, like Titanic was, has always been one of my favorite movies, but there's the scene where the water is about to burst through the doors and it's like exploding through the cracks. And that's how I felt like my life was that like, I had this kind of constant pressure and alcohol was contributing to that. And I had an experience where um, someone I was dating at the time brought up that I had drank all weekend and I had been hiding a lot of my drinking as this was someone that I didn't see very often. And as soon as they brought it up and they didn't say, hey, you have a problem, you need to go to rehab, you know, you need to get some help with this. They simply brought my attention to it. And the pressure at that point was so intense that as soon as this person saw it, it allowed the pressure to like the pressure valve to open. And I was, I knew, I just knew I had known for years that I needed to do something about this problem. I was a doctor of nutrition feeling like I was living a total double life. And as soon as that seemingly kind of unimportant conversation happened, it was just like the switch that needed to flip for me. And that's the thing is that it doesn't have to be this like major change in your life. It doesn't have to be this major thing. It can simply be you listening to this conversation that says, I feel in my gut like this is something I want to try and explore. And all your job is to do is to follow those breadcrumbs and start seeing how you feel. Because I know in my life that my life completely changed. All of the doors opened for me. I got a book deal, something I had been like wanting for many, many years. And sobriety really brought me to all of these things with grace and dignity. And I'm so grateful for that. Uh, I mean, I, I think in many ways when we're ready for the work, it brings us into full alignment and then we're able to actualize our full potential. Well, thank you so much for this discussion today. Please let listeners know how to purchase your new book, how to connect with you on social media, 
if they want to work with you, how to connect with you. I don't know if you you probably like the rest of the world do things virtually, but if they want to connect with you and work with you, how would they go about doing that? Yeah. So thank you so much again for having me, Cynthia. The book is available wherever books are sold, How to Eat to Change How You Drink. And it is available or on shelves as of December 26th here in the US and then around the world on January 4th. So perfect for your dry January, um, but also just, you know, exploring your sober curious journey or just exploring a life with less alcohol. I'm most active on social media on Instagram at dr. Dr. Brooke Scheller. And also you can learn more about me and my programs, my online programs. I work with clients around the world. I also have an online community that is a wellness focused approach to a sober curious lifestyle. And I also see some clients one-on-one and you can learn more about that at functionalsobriety.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Cynthia. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.